Welcome to the podcast of ideas. Over the next few weeks and months, we'll be releasing audio from the Battle of Ideas Festival, which took place at the Barbican on the 2nd and 3rd of November 2019. The debate you're about to hear is called Casta Semenya, Running into Controversy, Genes, Gender and Sport, with Jeff Kidder as chair. Okay, so welcome to Casta Semenya, Running into Controversy, Genes, Gender and Sport. My name's Jeff Kidder, I'm Director of Membership Events at the Academy of Ideas and convener of the Academy of Ideas Book Club and one of the main organisers of, of the festival. We have five panellists who have quite a considerable expertise in this area, quite a lot of opinions in this area, and they will all give short, about five-minute introductions, and then we'll get audience questions, comments, and have a, 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 hopefully a constructive discussion in the next hour and a quarter. So just to introduce the panellists uh, in the order of which they'll speak, and while, when they speak, they can tell you their particular expertise in this field. Firstly, we have Dr Emily Ryle, immediately to my right, reader in applied philosophy at the University of Gloucestershire and author of Philosophy of Sport, Key Questions. There we go. Next, we have Dr Carlton Brick, Lecturer in Sociology at the School of Education and Social Sciences at the University of the West of Scotland. Then Dr. Sylvia Camparese, Director of Bioethics and Society Postgraduate Programme, King's College London, and co-author of Bioethics, Genetics and Sports. Georgina Newcomb, English Literature and Philosophy student at Durham University, athlete and footballer on the editorial team of The Bubble, and an alumnus of Living Freedom, which is a very valuable uh, uh, programme for young people discussing issues around freedom. And finally, last but not least, Dr. Joel Nathan Rosen, who's Associate Professor of Sociology and Anthropology at Moravian College, uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and author of The Erosion of the American Sporting Ethos, Shifting Attitudes Towards Competition. So we have a wide range of expertise here and also a wide range of uh, uh, of opinion as there's more to expert than expertise in, involved in this discussion and without any further ado I'll ask Emily to kick us off. Okay so I mean in relation to this topic I'm interested in, in looking at it from three main questions and, and the first question is what makes fair sport? Uh, how do we want sport to, to look? How do we design it, construct it so it does what we want it to do? Uh, the second question is, is what is it to be a woman? and who gets to determine or decide that. And the third question is, how do we protect individuals, individual rights and uh, dignity in, in sport? So I think if we're able to answer those three questions, then we might start to uh, get somewhere with this issue around uh, Casta Semenya and genetics and, and fair or unfair advantage. Um, so that first question about what do we want sport to look like? How do we ensure that it's good? Uh, I think that ideally we want sport to be something that we want to participate in or we want to watch, and that means that it's, it's got to be um, a, a, an environment where people are able to excel, so they're able to do the, the best that they can possibly do, and we don't know who the outcome or what the outcome is going to be, so the idea that the outcome is never predetermined. Um, even if you've, you've, kind of, you've got certain odds on favourites, you don't know 
who the final victor is. So we want to try and construct sport that's it's something that is aesthetically pleasing, something that looks good, something that's skillful, but also something that, that's, that's fair to those individuals uh, that are participating in it. Um, so we tend to divide sports according to what we think are relevant characteristics. And those characteristics might be weight in boxing or martial arts or wrestling. It might be age category, uh, characteristics. Um, it might be skill level. So we often have different levels of leagues. And if you kind of get to the top of a league, you can then get promoted. Or if you're not good enough, you get demoted. Um, but we also have this issue around um, dividing sport along lines of sex on the basis that sex is a relevant characteristic. But how then do we determine what is sex? And this leads on to that second question is, is what is it to, to, to be a woman? Now, historically, and if you go back to um, kind of fears around um, males pretending to be females in sport, uh, they've said, well, you can determine sex according to genitalia. Or then it moved on to you can you know, determine sex according to chromosomes or genetics. And now we use testosterone. So the latest thing is, well, Men have a, have a range of testosterone and women have a, another range of testosterone. So therefore, if you're outside the typically female range of testosterone, then you've got to reduce it or limit it in order to be a, a kind of a real woman. And I think that's the, the real issue um, in, this, in this topic is that um, what is it to, to, to be a woman and how do we determine it and how do we protect the individual rights and the dignity of those that are questioned in terms of of what it is to, to be a, a, a woman. And I think in relation to, to Casta Semenya, the way that she's been treated has been absolutely abhorrent by the IAAF because the IAAF, the Athletics Association, have effectively determined that she's kind of too good to be a woman. And so therefore, she has to be reduced in some way, her performance has to be reduced so that she's able to compete with real women. And I think that, that kind of gets to the, the crux of the issue. Um, because we, we don't ever say that uh, ex extreme, extraordinary male performance, they're too good to be male. We don't question their manlyhood in that. To be a real man, you know, is to excel. To be a real woman is not. So I think that kind of, that's where I'll probably end up in relation to, to this, this issue. So those three questions. What do we want sport to look like? How do we ensure it's, it's fair? What is it to be a woman and who gets to de decide that? Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. I, um, in just kind of looking at a little bit of background to this issue, uh, it was in 2015 that the IAAF instituted or tried to bring in its rule change on uh, hyperandrogenism, which is. Uh, the high natural levels of testosterone in women. And there was, uh, that went to arbitration, and in t April uh, 2008, they rolled out the rule uh, under the differences of sex development rules. I think, kind of following on from uh, points that Emma has made, I think there are kind of three kind of core questions that come through this discussion. One is, what are the implications for sports? Two, how do we uh, define uh, gender or what it is to be a woman? 
But three, I think there's a broader context that this discussion fits into, and I'm going to kind of throw this out, and uh, hopefully it'll come out through the discussion something that we can discuss uh, in more detail. I think that the, this, the case of Castor Semenya reflects a much broader cultural war or attack on the concept of gender and sex, and particularly through the prism of womanhood. I do think it's striking in an age where we are told we live in a binary, a non-binary world where our identities are fluid, that Casta Semenya is a person who cannot determine or identify her gender as that which is objectively given. So I can identify as whatever I want. But here we have the institution of a rule which stipulates that you cannot identify or you are not allowed to compete in the gender that you have objectively been given. So I think that's quite an interesting and actually a worrying uh, development. So there's a broader, I think, context here which is about the relationship of subjectivity, the self, and how we identify ourselves to our objective uh, conditions. I just kind of want to look through, I think that's a, that's a big question to kind of throw out, but I think it does contextualize the, the, the debate around Castor Semenya. But I want to kind of have a look at some of the kind of consequences for sport for, for this decision. Uh, the IWAF instituted the rule bring, and have justified it in terms that it gives parity and integrity to women's athletics, particularly 800 meters running. I would argue it does the exact opposite. It problematizes and throws into utter chaos the concept of women's athletics. One of the other really bizarre connotations of this is that in the age of where the IAAF, and I'm, a few years ago I sat on a panel with Jeff and we were discussing uh, drug use in, in sport and doping, here we have the sanctioning, the official sanctioning of doping and drugging athletes to reduce their performance. So it's okay to take drugs to make you a worse athlete than you normally are, but it's not okay to take drugs to make you a better athlete. That is anathema to what I understand sport to be, elite sport to be about, which is about being better than what you are. And this is one of the problems with women's 800 meter running at this moment in time. An interesting fact, where do you think Casta Semenya sits on the top 25 all-time record 800-meter times. She's fourth. So, in a race of the four fastest women 800-meter runners, she wouldn't even medal. However, she's yards, miles, mid, uh, seconds ahead of the... So the issue, one of the issues here is that actually women's 800-meters athletics is actually a fairly mediocre in a fairly mediocre situation. Over the last 25 years, the times have been getting slower. The men's 800 meters, on the other hand, have uh, got faster. So there's, a, there's an issue of spectacle here, which I think 
is in part part of the, uh, not the whole reason for the introduction of, of, of this rule, but it, it kind of codifies or legitimizes mediocrity. I think that's a, and that's a, a dangerous, I think, anathema to, to sport. The, the way that this question, however, the broader question, the way that this question has been framed, it's very much kind of, and the IWAF's uh, legitimizing it, is that it kind of provides a natural biological definition of what a woman is, as opposed to the cultural definition. And in short, and hopefully this will come out in the discussion, I think both those definitions are fundamentally inadequate of con constituting athletic performance in and of itself, but also what it is to be a woman. Being a woman is neither biological, genetic, or cultural. It's something else, and perhaps that can be teased out. But I would like to leave, finally, the woman who we're talking about here, the, the last word to uh, Casta Semenya. Around this issue, Castor, she was obviously asked, are you a woman? Her response was, yes, of course I am. I have a vagina, not a penis. Hello, so I am a bioethicist. Um, my interest in uh, Castor Semenya issues in, uh, is an interest in ethics and sport. I'm also a... <laughs> Uh, former non-professional track and field athletes growing up in um, my home country in Italy, so I was never really fast, but my interest in this area stemmed from the fact that I had an interest and I liked uh, track and field. And Castro Semena case is really complex. It goes back to 2009 when she competed in Berlin as a World Track Championship. And she finished first with uh, uh, an advantage over the silver medalist of 1.5 seconds. We started to trigger suspicions of doping. That was in 2009. And the fellow Italian, actually, athlete, Elisa Kuzma, said, well, she's not a woman, she's a man. And at that time, there was no sex testing in place. And we can discuss more. I think um, Emily has, has mentioned... Um, about the history of, of sex testing in sport, how it had evolved. In 2009, there was no sex testing. But the IWAF had the right to, to decide to do test testing on the basis of some uh, trigger. In, in this case, could have been a comment of a fellow athlete or how a woman, how an athlete looked like. Now, uh, fast forward. Now we are in 2019, and we are still discussing Castor Semenya's case. I like to think about this like a never-ending story, but um, and it's a sort of tragic, but for for Castor and for women athletes. And uh, I think for uh, for IWF, um, they've really uh, always framed the issue of um, requiring. Uh, what they're requiring is a pharmaco, <clears throat> is a androgen suppressive therapy. So they're requiring women athletes like Semenya or Duty Chan with high level of testosterone compared to an average uh, female athlete to take androgen suppressive therapy. And this is something that uh, is not, um, is a condition which is required of them to enter in competition, but it's an otherwise unnecessary medicalization of healthy bodies, and this is why it's so problematic from a medical ethics point of view, so much that recently 
this year, the World Medical Association has come forward with a statement, quite a strong statement, saying that uh, doctors and physicians should not comply with the IWF regulation. This was after the ruling in May of the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which is the Supreme Court of Sports, dismissing so many appeal. So basically saying the regulation uh, stay in place and with them the requirement of taking androgen suppressive therapy to reduce the level to compete. But the World Medical Association has come forward saying doctors should not comply because this goes against uh, the principle of duty to benefit uh, patients. And in this case, there is no need for these healthy bodies to be medicalized, and on the contrary, um, it could very well be damaging to them. So the IWF has always framed the issue in terms of uh, we are requiring this medicalization on grounds of fairness, because Castro-Semenia, Duty Chand, and other athletes with high level of testosterone have an unfair advantage, and the reducing testosterone level would basically restore 11 playing field which has been disrupted. However, in my work and many others um, that have grappled with this question is like the key question is that fairness has never really been discussed at the level of uh, the Court for Arbitration for Sport, which is where this dispute get um, uh, challenged and appeal. So, we had in 2015 Duty Chan, the India sprinter, appealing to the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which uh, ruled that uh, there was not enough evidence for the regulation to stay in place, so the regulation were suspended. This was 2015. And although that was perceived as, as a good news, because Duty Chan and Castro could run, the grounds on which the regulation were suspended could already point to the fact that the issue would, was not over, that we were going to come to this point a few years down the line, because what the Court of Arbitration for Sport looked at was only a degree of advantage conferred by testosterone. So they looked at, does testosterone confer an advantage in a performance advantage? But they didn't look at the question of, would this advantage be unfair? And I think that in order to settle the question, we need to look at testosterone advantage in a, in a comparative way and look at the other genetic advantages that we see in sports, the other genetic variation that do confer a performance advantage. And we know there are many of them because the science of genetic sport performance is unraveling the genetic variation by the day, and we actually have genetic tests to uh, scout out early and potential talents when uh, kids are three or four. So we actually use this test to scout out potential talents. So what, what is different? What, that, what is that makes testosterone different? Um, because fairness requires that we treat alike cases alike. So... From my point of view, and this is a question I'd like to discuss with you all, is that is there something that makes testosterone different from other genetic variations that confer an advantage? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think our fellow panelists have teased out really well the bigger issues in this debate, and there's a few main questions that I'd like to touch upon that sort of bring it back to Castor herself um, before I hopefully have time to say something about the context, but I may not. Um, the first question is, does Castor Semenya have a competitive advantage? I think this is probably the easiest question to answer, and the answer is yes. Um, I think what we've discussed so far is that increased levels of testosterone significantly 
improve endurance levels, lean muscle mass uh, in women and in men. It allows muscles to grow bigger, stronger, and it allows quicker recovery, which is a vital thing. If you're an elite athlete training every day, you need to be able to recover as quickly as possible. Um, and it's alleged that Semenya has testosterone levels of up to three times higher than the average female athlete. Um, so I think it's pretty safe to say that Semenya's biology is an advantage. That's pretty much indisputable. Um, the second question I'd like to ask is, following on from that, is this advantage unfair? And again, I've got to say, yes, it is. And who is it unfair for? For the other female athletes that don't have differences of sexual development, that don't have an, um, higher levels of testosterone. There was a study published in the British Medical Journal which compared female athletes with high levels of testosterone and those with low levels of testosterone. And they found uh, a 1.8% performance increase in the group that had higher testosterone levels. Now, this study has methodological flaws. I'm sure my fellow panelists are far more qualified to tease those out. Um, and some of the data is problematic. But I think the general scientific consensus is that testosterone is really, really important when it comes to um, elite sport. And if we look at Semenya's impressive track record, um, we can see that she's unbeaten in 30 consecutive races. Her season's best this year is the 14th fastest of all time, um, even whilst all this controversy is going on. Um, and these tiny percentages um, in elite athletics really, really matter. They can make the difference between winning the race and not making the final. Um, and the final question I'd like to ask is, should she be allowed to compete with this in mind? And I'm going to say yes to this one too, absolutely, and I will defend her to the last. And I think there's two key reasons for this. The first one is that Semenya's advantages are entirely natural. She's not chosen them. They've not been artificially procured in some way. She's not a lab rat. There's no foul play. She's not a drugs cheat, right? That's just the way she is. And I've got to say, Lady Gaga was right when she said, I was born this way, because Semenya was, and she should be allowed to compete because of her natural advantages. I don't think we ought to discriminate against somebody for things that they cannot change or that they have no control over. And we sh certainly shouldn't be driving them out of the sport. And the second reason I believe she should be allowed to compete is something that my fellow panellists have touched on um, already, and that is the question of fairness in sport. Now, the IAAF claim that they're keeping competition fair by forcing or only allowing so many to compete if she takes um, testosterone-suppressing drugs. Um, but sport has never been and never will be fair. It's never promised a level playing field. It simply doesn't exist. And I'm the, of the opinion that elite sport is a competition between the richest, the most well-developed, and genetically speaking, the luckiest individuals in the world. And I include Semenya in that. Um, there's certain differences in cardiovascular ability, height, uh, lung capacity, that all encourage sporting excellence. And some people have them, and some people don't. And if you don't, you're not going to be a very good sports person. Um, and Semenya cannot compete unless she takes these hormone suppressants. That's what the ruling says. And not only is this an attack on her personal freedom, and I could argue deeply unethical, it forces her to be average, which isn't what sport is about. It's, as Carlton said, it's championing mediocrity. Semenya is the best of the best, and we should be celebrating that. We should let her be. In excluding Semenya from competition, uh, the IAAF seemed to be buying into this idea, this social idea, that, the, that it's inconceivable that a strong, muscular female athlete could be natural or authentic. And all we're doing by con condemning Semenya to the trackside is preserving this image of what is appropriate for female athletes.
You can be strong, but you can't be too muscular. You can be gutsy, but you can't be too aggressive. And this is happening in a context where female athletes are on the receiving end of derogatory comments about their physiques, about the way that they look, or an unreasonable scrutiny in a way that male athletes are not. Um, and by outlining this, I'm not arguing that Semenya is being discriminated against because of her androgynous looks or because of her muscular frame, but simply that the debate that's happening surrounding her legitimacy to compete as a female athlete is happening within the context of these attitudes towards female athletes, and I think that's a really important thing uh, that we need to tease out. Well, what she said. Um, my orientation is primarily in team sport, and so it, this is a, a much difficult, much more difficult discussion to have in, in terms of individual athletes than I think the rest of the, uh, the panel would have. So bear with me as I try to tease out a few uh, random seeming thoughts. There is sort of a, a weird hyperbole in sport that somebody can actually be too good. Um, when we say it about the food reading that we in, are enjoying, we are being playful and hyperbolic about it. But somehow in the last 20 years in sport, being too good is seen as some, something sinister. There's an American sport ethos that says if you're not cheating, you're not trying. That stems from um, the earliest days of baseball when there were four umpires on the field at all time, and if you get away with something, you probably earned it. This is less playful in an age of, of uh, sort of a hyper-awareness of doping in sport, and it makes it certainly problematic. And I think what, what I've been hearing about this, this story over the years is this is just simply undeniable cruelty to an athlete who has done everything you're supposed to do to prepare for sport and is still being held to a standard that is incons it, it, it's incompatible with, with a humane standard. I don't know who said it, but I remember hearing somewhere that somebody once said, I don't mind being held to a standard, I do mind being held to a lower standard, and that's what we're doing with this, this person, is holding her to a much lower standard. If you look at the history of sport, particularly in American sport, in American team sport, there has always been somebody who comes along and changes everything. In the 1940s, the then Minneapolis Lakers had a seven-footer who actually didn't fall over his feet every time he ran down the court. His name was George Mikan. He was a minim minimally six inches taller than anybody else on the court. They didn't suspend the NBA for the season because it was an unfair advantage that he had. They simply figured out that you know maybe there are some seven-footers who have the capacity to play competitive basketball. And George Mikan was, in, in many ways, the, the pioneer of the game that we come to recognize in the 60s, 70s, and 80s being, being dominated by big men. He was never asked to run on his knees. He was never asked to somehow stoop lower because it was really unfair for the rest of the ballplayers to try to keep up. We have seen this in, in every American sport and certainly in, in, in international sport as well. I, I think of people like... Um, Currently, the Yankees have a pitcher named Aroldis Chapman who, when he's just playing soft toss, reaches 100 miles per hour. He is one of those pitchers that the umpire doesn't necessarily call balls and strikes so much as he tries to hear the sound where the ball landed. 
he's an impossible get. When the Yankees take a lead into the ninth inning, the game is all but over. And that's one of those things. It's just the way it, it, way it plays out. We, we spend a lot of time talking about the level playing field in sport, but there's never been a level playing field. There have always been people in sport, uh, whether we're talking about uh, you know, male sport, female sport, who have just simply been better than everyone else. And usually, not always, but the combination of training regimen uh, certainly advances in training regimens alongside such things as physical gifts have always informed these pioneering figures. It, to, to hold Castro Semenya as somehow different from the George Mikans and the Wilt Chamberlains and the Araldus Chapmans and some of the other athletes who have forced others to look far beyond what how they train at, at that present date and look for other ways to get an advantage, a fair advantage in sport, is the epitome of, of inhumane. And this story is so much more than just sport. I'm captivated by this notion. I have been for some time now, about 20 years ago, I started looking at this idea that there was a female component of competition. And I'm pretty sure we have answered that question emphatically. There is no such thing as a feminine competitive ethos. There are simply women who compete. They compete as all athletes do. There's no such thing as second place in the world of, high, of, of elite sport. You either, you're either the winner or you're not. And, and to consider otherwise, to, you know, to inform mediocrity and to enforce this with a drug regimen is simply something that I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. But sport is rarely about sport any longer. And just to close out my remarks, when I was writing my chapter on Marion Jones as an iconic American athlete, the one thing that sort of jumped out at me is that every time I saw her name mentioned, it was alongside some of the other drug cheats in sport. It was always Barry Bonds and uh, some, other some other male name, uh, Roger Clemens, some of the great, you know, some of the celebrated cheaters of the day. And then there was Marion Jones, and I realized something that hadn't ever occurred to me, which was that Marion Jones is probably the most celebrated women's athlete ever. In, in fact, she's probably the first female athlete in world history who is on par with the men simply because she is as much a villain as they are. It would take her villainy to, to, for her to achieve actual equity in the sporting world. And I think this, this Castro Semenya story is much bigger than even the Marion Jones story because it's the first time we're finding out that there is such a thing as a non-hyperbolic, she's just too good. There seems to be consensus on the panel regarding the Castor Semenya issue, which I can quite understand. But I was wondering, does the issue regarding Castor Semenya stem from the wider conversation in sport regarding gender, um, particularly regarding transgender athletes? Um, so I was wondering, given that there seems to be quite a lot of consensus, I'm not sure how far we're going to dig into it, um, but I was wondering whether the panel would what the panel's views would be with regards to a wider issue concerning transgender athletes and do they take a different view in that context? Thank you. Also, if people want to query, there is a certain consensus, so if people want to query that or 
whatever, that would be very glad to hear from you. Yeah, who's... Uh, hi there. I heard the idea that um, why is testosterone different from sort of any other genetic aspect? And um, I, I think that if you ask that question, you also have to ask the, why have a separate women's category in sport at all? Um, because that is the, ma the major difference that has been sort of identified. Um, and then the other part, which is the implications of the ruling, which is that what happens if people now change gender, identify as a different gender in sport, um, can they then, then uh, take um, testosterone reduction uh, chemicals to, to change um, their levels and, and compete as women if they so chose? Um, and is that, would that actually bring them down to a level which would be what the IAAF would call fair, given they've had a lifetime of, of testosterone, um, which I think has other impacts? So thank you for making uh, all of your cases. They're very effective ways to demonstrate how uh, apparently, self-evidently unfair what's happening seems to be. I'm just wondering if you could please provide some sort of steel man version of the opposing argument because I, I can't even wrap my head around what would be presented as an, uh, as an alternative argument to what you're saying. Yeah, it's, it's slightly echoing uh, one of the points that was already made, um, but to bring it in a more concrete example, I, don't, I guess most, if not all of the panel, are familiar with the cyclist Rachel McKinnon. Um, so bringing up the trans issue, um, there's a kind of, uh, I don't know, for me, it's sort of almost like a visceral impact of looking at the photo of Rachel McKinnon at the top of the podium with the two born as female second and third place athletes in a recent competition uh, with her much larger muscles throughout her body, um, you know, broader shoulders, much taller. And I believe that in a particular race, the either second or third place woman was happy about it, the other one wasn't. So, and also in the title of this talk, it talks about gender. Casasmenia is a woman, was born a woman. Uh, can we be very clear on the difference between gender and sex. Could we look at that? Thanks. So I'll get the panel to come in briefly and then we'll go out again. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'll pick up on that point you raised around, well, why do, why do we bother separating sport into male and female categories at all? And perhaps we shouldn't. Um, and I think that's, that's what I was trying to ask at the, at the beginning. Is, is sex a relevant characteristic or should we have something else, such as skill, or weight or height or whatever else we and it's and it's really difficult because I think perhaps for me I think skill is probably the key characteristic um, in terms of you sport has to be enjoyable for those to participate enjoyable to watch it's got to have some aesthetic value and it's got to have some value in in being able to push yourself to excel, to get better than you, than you were before. Um, I've, I've certainly struggled with that issue around, well, can, can we just, let's get rid of sectatories. What would that do to sport? And I can understand the main argument against it comes from those elite female athletes that say, hang on a minute, suddenly I won't, I won't have any kind of podium at all. I'll just be out of here. Um, and I think that might, might be true in some cases, and can we accept that? I can understand why elite 
female athletes would struggle with that because suddenly you don't get any visibility at that top end in women's sport. And then there's a whole issue around, well, what does that do for younger women, role model, that role model argument? Um, perhaps it's to do with what we value in sport and the construction of sports. So for me, track and field athletics, I'm not interested in it at all. Like, who cares how high you can jump, how fast you can sprint? What I want to see is, is those really kind of complex skill sports where it's about hand-eye coordination, it's about those things that aren't all about the physiological strength, power, speed. That, to me, is what good sport is. It's about those... It's much more complex element of skill, and maybe then we can just have, you know, no-sex categories in sport. Okay. So, yeah. so I'm going to respond to the first question. I don't uh, know where I should be looking, because uh, the question about... Uh, the implication for transgender in sport. Now, I think Castor Semenya issue and duty chan and hyperandrogenism and transgender eligibility, male to female athletes in sport, should be uh, kept two separate issues. I mean, been working on Castor Semenya's um, case for 10 years, and only in the last year we have been hearing, and this actually we've been hearing it uh, by the the team of lawyers working for the IWAF kind of um, saying that transgender, if, we, if Cassius Semenya would win the appeal, so the latest ruling, we're talking about two separate rulings, the 2015 and the 2019 ruling, Cassius Semenya and Athletics South Africa against IWAF appealing to the Court for Arbitration for Sport. First, in 2015, we had a suspension of the regulations. The IWAF came back with additional evidence that, uh, about a correlation of testosterone and increased performance. And in the most recent ruling, the Court for Abitation for Sport said, although the particular study that underlines the regulation has many methodological flaws, as it was uh, pointing out, uh, we still think that you know, testosterone plays an important role. So by a majority of two out of three judges, they dismissed Kasser uh, Semenya's case. However, nowhere in the case and the discussion, if you can read the 150 pages, 150 pages of the rulings are available for the public to, to access on the internet. The only mention about transgender eligibility is when the lawyers on the side of the IWF raise the, the point of, uh, oh, if uh, we let Cassius Semenya compete, then we're going to see the floodgates of women's sport being inundated by male through female uh, uh, athletes, transgender athletes. And this, I think, is a scare tactics, and we've seen it before in the history of sex testing in sport, which was mentioned again earlier. Uh, in 2009, when the case first came to the fore, there was no sex testing in place because it had been agreed by the international regulation, the IOC, International Olympic Committee, and the other federation, that sex testing would lead to more false positive than to actually identify the men masquerading as women and competing in women's sport, which was the scare tactics of the 50s and 60s. So historians of sport, I don't claim to be one, but... Uh, Vanessa Hagee in, in the UK and others have been writing about this care tactics. So from my point of view, I think the two things should be kept separate. And whenever we hear about it, it's because lawyers working on IWF want to use it as, as a scare tactic. But I'll stop here and let 
my other panelists respond to the other questions. Um, I think the question about uh, testosterone and the logic of, uh, if we follow this logic uh, to, its to, to a conclusion, is what, well, why not then give uh, transgender athletes uh, testosterone-reducing drugs to enable them to, to compete in, in women's uh, categories? I think the context, and it's maybe this slightly, uh, I'm not sure if this may be kind of play devil's advocate, in the sense that I don't think this is necessarily a question about the negative images of women, of strong women in sport. It's more of a question about the negative perception of women in society. And what I mean by that is the object, there is an objective difference between men and women. There's an objective difference to being a woman and feeling like a woman. There are objective, there are objective conditions that kind of produce a subjectivity that is kind of not rooted in a physical, biological uh, uh, context or a cultural context. And I think the kind of distinction, the problem here is the, the discussion is that there is a kind of an acceptance that identities and who we are are fluid entities. And I think kind of what the IAAF have tried to do is intervene and say, well, no, we're going to draw the line. But actually in drawing the line, they further problematized the kind of objective nature of what being a man and what being a woman is. They've reduced the discussion of what being a woman is to a discussion around testosterone. They've reduced athletic performance, and I take all the points around kind of the role, of course there's a relationship between testosterone and genetics and biology and sporting performance. Of course there is. You know, short people don't make very good high jumpers. You know, it's not... It's not coincidence that all the high jumpers are six foot plus. It's an obvious advantage. However, what we're doing, what, what the IAAF, rather than providing clarity, it provides the opposite. It throws open the kind of the issue to what it problematizes the issue of what being a woman is within the context of this notion of kind of we live in this world where the objective realities that shape us are no longer that important. We can move between these very fluid ideas of who we are and what we are. And I think that kind of permeates the, the, the Semenya debate and kind of why we need to defend the kind of the, the notion of women's sport and men's sport. There are, of course, sports where men and women do compete equally. Horse racing, horse jumping, mo some motorsports. So there are sports where there is no sex uh, kind of division. But I, kind of think, I, I think it is important that we do hold these institutions to account in terms of uh, holding the kind of objective categories the objective binary opposites of what being a woman is, rather than organizing it around what feeling 
what being like a woman is. And kind of maybe just finally, just to touch on the point that you raised, the kind of the steel man argument. The way that this discussion has been framed largely by the IAAF and kind of opponents of the ruling is through this biology versus kind of cultural identity in the sense. But as I think colleagues on the panel have said, you know, that isn't the nature of the, the debate. This is not a debate around biology and cultural identity because neither of those are sufficient to explain either sporting performance or gender. Okay. Well, I'm going to take a couple of people from the audience and then, of course, I, and then I'll bring Joel back in. And, and, and the, yeah, the guy right at the back. First. Yeah, so agree with so much of what you guys have said. Would have been more interesting, I suppose, if you had somebody who disagreed. But in regard to defining men and women, it's something we're going to have to do if we want to keep the two sports separate. And if not on genitals, and if not on how you were born because of, you know, intersex individuals, um, and now if not on testosterone, what are we going to do if we want to keep these two categories just in practical terms? I was interested to hear from the lady next to you, Jeff. I'm sorry, I remember all your names, that she finds track and field events too tiresomely devoid of complexity and sophistication to be worthy of her attention. She might have considered that before she joined the panel, perhaps. But I'll be honest with you, even in games where a good deal more hand-eye coordination and various other skill metrics are applied, men and women cannot compete on even terms. It simply cannot be done. The Australian female first football team recently, famously on internet, if you're interested in that sort of field, were beaten robustly by a team of under 15-year-old Australian schoolboys, something like 7-0. The sports which you identified, sir, as being the ones in which women can compete evenly with men are the ones in which all the musculature is provided either by a horse or a car. This should be enough to suggest that they cannot be and it's all very well to say there is more variation within the group than there is between the groups. That old fallacy will not hold here. It simply would eliminate women from elite sport and we would not see them on our screens. And I have a daughter and I want her to see role models. And I'm afraid Kastra Samania is a very unfortunate individual, although I think she'll see out her career without experiencing a great deal of unfortunate consequences potentially because she seems to be protected by uh, the sporting establishment and everyone is doing their best to make sure that she enjoys a glittering career. Sport at that level is very much a matter of being a champion for your country and her country and her nation and her people are justly proud of her. And she's an extraordinary athlete and she doesn't deserve any degree of criticism for her attempts to do the very best that she can with what she's been given. But what she's been given, I'm afraid, to the best of my understanding, is XY chromosomes, two undescended testicles, high exposure to androgens both in the womb and during puberty, which have left her with absurdly high levels of testosterone in the terms demanded by a female sporting event. And to pretend that this is some, if she was just born with long legs or broad shoulders or a keen eye or something, nobody would be having this conversation. In fact, it is the superficial female genitalia which tricked her into thinking that she was simply a girl until quite late in life, which are the outliers in all the sexual markers which should be identified in terms of identifying whether or not she's a suitable uh, competitor in female sports. If you want to eliminate female sports, fine, go for it, I don't care. But if you want to have them, you need to have significant markers. And I tend to agree with you, I don't think she should have her testosterone suppressed. I think she should be, I'm sorry, eliminated from female sport. She is not 
uh, an adequate candidate, if you're going to make conditions by which females and males are separated for sporting purposes in order to try and ensure some kind of meaningful competition, then I'm afraid she stands outside of the category of female for that purpose. Okay, thank you. And you made your point well, and it often is the audience that turns the battle of ideas into the battle of ideas. So uh, you take the lady down here, then I'll bring Georgina and Joel, and then... Um, I, th I think we still haven't really addressed the trans issue very much. Um, personally, um, I think that trans people should be allowed to compete in the sport uh, that of the gender that they assign themselves. Um, I watched a documentary a while ago, don't remember the name, some of you on the panel might have watched it, and it was saying that when trans women take estrogen pills or t testosterone suppressants that um, biologically, medically, actually reduces their um, uh, level of performance in sport anyway. Um, but what about for those trans people who are uh, medically transitioning on the NHS and have to wait two years before they can get a consultation and then however long before they can start taking any medication to medically, uh, medically transition? Would those people then... Uh, because uh, I don't know about the legislation or policies, but would they, those people then um, just be um, expected to stay in the sporting team of their sex and not their gender, or would they be encouraged to just kind of stay out of sport for the next two or three years? Yeah, so um, I'd like to come back on um, the question that was asked by the guy in the red coat right at the back there. Um, so how to um, define sex or gender but still keep the categories um i think we've got to look back in history if you want to try and understand how difficult it is to do this um so the for decades the international olympic committee have used a variety of methods they've tested chromosomes they've made athletes get undressed and had a look at them they've used um, genetic analysis they've used loads of different methods methods to try and determine um to try and distinguish between male athletes and female athletes. And you just can't do it definitively. And David Epstein says this really well when he says, human biology does not break down into male and female as politely as sport, sporting governing bodies um, would wish. So sorry to disappoint you, but we haven't yet found a way that is 100% foolproof. So I think, sadly, we are perhaps raising more questions than we're answering um, in this session. But... I think maybe another question to throw out there, I don't know if um, the audience will be interested in this, but I'm curious as to whether Casta Semenya's case would have gone unnoticed, whether people would care about it so much if she agreed to perform gender, if she agreed to be com more conventionally, conventionally feminine. And so I think just like the International Olympic Committee and trying to find out the answers and trying to distinguish, we're coming out with more questions than we have answers. Um, but... That's where we're at, so sorry about that. I've been toying with this idea of, of doing away with the categories of male-female sport for a long time, if only because of these very reasons. You know, when I was growing up playing ball in the streets, there were two kinds of athletes, those who could play and those who never got picked. And it really didn't matter who was wearing what at the time. If you could play, you could play. And if you can't, you can't. You're relegated to the B circuit. And let's face it, this, women's sports has always been the B circuit. The, the, the champion of the women's circuit has always been seen as sort of the afterthought. It's not the ideal, but it's sort of the reality. And this idea that we, can, we have to relegate women to the second-class citizenry in, in sport 
you know, does, does it really allow them to compete at the higher levels, those who can make it? I'm, I don't actually agree with everything you said back there, but I do think it needed to be said if only because somebody had to answer his question. At the same time, there, there is sort of a historical, there, there are historical roots to this very question, and it, it's almost appalling how quickly this discussion started off at Orwell but ends up at Huxley. When I hear words like sex testing, it just sends a shiver down my spine that we actually have to strip people down and find out if they actually had an unfair advantage somewhere. What, it, I'm reminded of how American race scientists spent much of the 19th century poking and prodding every conceivable piece of Negro body part in looking for that one thing that, was fit, that would physically identify an actual difference in the races. And then we move into the 20th century, and here comes Babe Didrikson, who was an extraordinary athlete, who was good at everything she did, and everybody assumed one of two things. Either she was a man passing herself off as, as a woman, or that she had irreparably damaged her reproductive organs to the point that that the, the, the body, her body fluids had somehow been recalibrated. It wasn't that long ago that women were told participating in, in elite sport meant damaging your reproductive organs. And, and that a woman who can't conceive is, well, she, she sort of loses her worth. And all these years later, we seem to be still having these biological discussions, and we don't really talk about who can play and who can't. Somebody was, this, this discussion of transgender, and I really, that's not my, my expertise. In some ways, it's the, the third rail of American sport discussion. I don't want, really wish to touch it. But I am reminded of when Renee Richards, after her conversion, played on the, the women's tennis circuit, and I don't think she ever got higher than, than triple digits in terms of her ratings. It wasn't that she overnight became the best tennis player women's, uh, women's tennis had ever seen before. There is something about this discussion that just seems odd, just seems weird, and it just seems to, to counter everything that Emily's talk, when Emily talks about, you know, there's beauty, there's aesthetic in sport. We have become so fixated on looking for cheaters that we almost forgot what sport is about. Sport is about reaching beyond what, we're, what we think we're capable of doing. And just because she has these sort of additional accoutrements, we have forgotten that this is a, a remarkable athlete. And as somebody pointed out, who's never made it higher than fourth in, 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 terms of her, in terms of her times. She's not revolutionizing the sport, but she is pushing other athletes for even better. And I think that's exactly what we, all we can ask of athletes. Okay, so I'm going to take a few more from the floor and then we'll see where they are. Hi, um, so uh, I'm a scientist and I study sex development. So I'd really like the panel, please, to clarify um, what is the sex complement of Casta Semenya? Because in my world, we define biological sex by X and Y chromosomes. So I'd really like to hear the panel clarify that, just for the sake of clarity, because that's not something that's been covered a lot. And also, um, just out of interest in that case, I wanted to point out the fact that you keep talking about 
because Casta Semenya's uh, testosterone levels are so much higher than the average female, she has to be brought down to this level to compete with the women. I just wanted to point out, it's interesting that you all just accept the fact that women's sport is lower, objectively, just constantly there. And so it leads me to the question, could you please define why it was that we ever thought it was worth having a female category? I, this is something that's been brought up already, but really, I think that's actually the heart of this thing. Why did we ever have this category? Because if you have a category, you have to have a definition for it. And if you don't want to give me a real definition or provide a definition that is accountable or measurable, then you have to de deal with the question of why we don't want a category. I saw, I was uh, at that one uh, the other night, and I can answer that one for you. Uh, she has a Y chromosome. That's, I looked that up. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't want to. I, did, I, I, I find it absolutely extraordinary that you would consider abolishing women's sport, any of you, for the sake of this one unfortunate outlier. And I agree with you that the, the policy of the, of, of the uh, body that's forcing you to take drugs, absolutely, it's appalling. It, that should not be happening at all. If you want to get rid of women's sport, so that you can avoid this kind of problem and the problem with transgender and all the rest of it, okay, don't call it women's sport anymore. Call it X-only sport. You got a Y chromosome, you cannot compete in this league. You got a Y, you got to compete with other people with Ys. End of. I, I, that solves the problem as far as I can see. Well, what I feel like is that I think everyone, people have a traditional idea of what sport is like and they tend to maybe put it into categories and things. But in reality, genes affect everything about our sporting performance and how we do things. And I don't believe anyone should be penalized for that because that's their genetic makeup. But this also kind of links to what sport is also like in the representation of the media. Uh, I was wondering if you would know um, how we can tackle social injustice such as like, why is the Olympics so much more widely represented represented than the Paralympics or the Deaf Olympics or the Dwarf Olympics. People some might not even heard of these things, so just wondering how we could break those barriers. It is a bit cheeky of me because I did ask a question earlier, but I do feel that the panel is skirting around this whole difference between sex and gender. Gender has taken on all kinds of new meanings in the last 10 years or so. I feel like a lot of the audience are very interested in the trans issue, but several of the panels said, no, trans, no, no, let's keep banging on and on about Casta Semenya. It's very interesting, but you did put gender in the title of this talk. And I've, I don't know, I just feel like a lot of people are interested in the trans issue. And what, just, I, I, I just want to re reiterate my question from earlier. How do you feel when you see an enormously powerfully muscular trans cyclist like Rachel McKinnon standing on top of a podium above two much smaller female cyclists. How do you feel when you see those teenage sprinters who are dominating youth sprinting in America, great big uh, trans girls dominating the female born girl sprinters in America? How do you feel when you see a trans mixed martial artist breaking the jaw of a female born uh, martial artist? How do you feel when you see a, a male-born weightlifter dominating a weight category in weightlifting? Doesn't it jar? I'm going to take the last people in the audience who want to speak, and I'll give every panelist two minutes, which is quite a lot for a panel like this, but come in back with as many things as, as you want. Um, just with regard to, well, Castro, Semenya, obviously, 
you know, she's in the fix she's in without, it wasn't cheating. It's the microphone. Not, it, she's, you know, as, as one of your panellists said, nothing about her situation is through cheating, if you will. She obviously wishes to be a sportswoman. She wants to compete. We hear the same thing with regard to the point the gentleman made there about, you know, particularly trans women wishing to compete. Um, and I, and I, you know, I saw the same pictures of the, the, the cycling and, and, you know, two things kind of struck me is where is the satisfaction in the victory, actually, for the person who clearly you know, had the advantage in the first place. And maybe we need to be looking for a way to make sport still a positive uh, comp competition, if you like, for people, you know, particularly trans women, who actually want to be able to compete, if you like, on a level, on a kind of a level playing field, um, without having, you know, the advantage that they are perceived to have had from having been as such, male. Um, I was reading an article recently about um, chess players and there's male and there's female chess players and the male world chess championships are very, very world-renowned and the female chess championships, not so much and in terms of world rankings for male and female, there's only, I think, two women that were amongst the top 200 um, and they looked at the performance and um, the uptake of competitors um, and for females, a lot of them dropped out, you know, by the time they were in fourth grade, um, particularly because at the same time, fourth grade males, they were learning about aggression and how they would exert this in performance. And when they did a blind study, um, essentially competing the male and the female um, players against each other, and if the females knew that they were playing another female, then they would perform as expected. If there was a female competing against an unknown male or female competitor, they would perform as expected. But the second that they knew they were pay playing against a male, their performance completely dropped. And I feel like there's something that's within that in terms of um, female performance and, um, and I guess that expectation that we all have when we're watching female sports and perhaps this is also why uh, when we're second-classing female performance. So I suppose, you know, if there, if there was a way to break the glass ceiling of female performance, like, why can't Caster Semenya be it? You know, if you had to make the sports more fair, is there another way to make it more fair? And um, if, if sports isn't ready for, to be able to delineate male and female, how are they going to be ready to delineate when there's a gender X and, and there's more people that want to compete in sport and want to reach their excellence um, regardless of their gender. Okay, okay thank you. I'm going to now ask the panellists a couple of minutes. They're welcome to address the issues that have been raised that have been neglected, but it's entirely up to them what they say. So we go in the same order. Is that all right, Emily? Do you want to... Wow, there's so much to say on this issue, and I know I've got two minutes to try and uh, focus it. I think you make a really good point in relation to some of the cultural issues. So the fact is that the way that our, culturally we have these expectations about how men and women are supposed to be and are supposed to perform and the things that they're supposed to be interested in, and culturally women are not supposed to be interested in sport as much as men and they don't get the same opportunities, they don't get the same priorities and that will have a knock-on effect on confidence, on 
performance levels and expectation. Now, obviously, that doesn't account for everything because there are, you're right, there are physiological differences between most men and most women. Not all, but most. Um, so I think my, where I would probably come up, and it's probably a cop-out, but can we construct sport in a different way whereby we can eliminate some of those, those issues and enable good sports. And uh, I mean, uh, uh, my background's in, in rugby. I've played a lot of rugby. I've played against people that are twice the size of me and I've been willing to, to do that. And I can compensate a lack of size with other attributes, which, which is why I like those more complex sports. I've also played in a lot of mixed sports. So uh, touch rugby is mixed. Three men, three women on a, t a team. And the, the rules of the sport are designed in such a way where actually there isn't the opportunity for men to you know, have those power and the, the strength and the speed advantages because the rules of sport eliminate those advantages and it means that men and women can compete together and it's a brilliant sport, it's a great sport and so I think, can we design sport in such a way which kind of bypasses some of those, these, these, those issues and I know that you probably think, some of you think it's a cop-out but can, can sport be better? Can sport be better? On the trans uh, athletes thing, I completely don't endorse the idea of trans athletes competing in the, uh, in the, the gender of that they have chosen. Uh, I think kind of, and to, I kind of largely agree with the points uh, made at the back about uh, I'm certainly not arguing for the dissolution of the division between men and women's sports. I'm actually arguing for, to keep it. But the, the, the point of the Castor Semenya debate is that it undermines that, those distinctions, those very real objective binary uh, distinctions. It, opened, it, it creates a situation where we fetishize, we begin to fetishize our, our biology and testosterone as the markers of, of, of who we objectively are in, in the world. So I'm very much against the idea that we need to somehow alter sport, change sport to accommodate to the, the, the kind of the fetishization of, the, of cultural uh, identity. How we do that, I, I have a very simple plan and it refers to the points I made about Castor Semenya in my introduction. You, you pointed to the kind of the accidental... The, or the, the meaninglessness of, of, of genitalia, but maybe that's a starting point. Uh, Semenya wasn't fooled as such to believe that she was a, a, a female, a, a woman. Society told her she was a, a woman. It was assigned at birth because there's an objective reality to the way in which male and female are constructed socially and understood within the, the worlds we live in, the objective worlds uh, we live in. It, so again, I'm kind of reiterating the point, there's a very real difference between feeling like a woman and being a woman. And Castor Semenya, in my understanding, has been a woman. Now we're kind of not quite sure because she's got different arrangements of chromosomes. So I'm very much against the idea that we need to orientate sport, the values of sport, and the way that we uh, organize sporting competition around the, uh, the kind of uh, the fetishization of, of cultural identity. 
Sport is sport. It's about winners and then the rest. And I think sport has never been fair. It shouldn't be fair. And once we begin to kind of undermine that element of sport, we lose what is so great about sport. And unfortunately, I think we're about to lose a very great athlete to, uh, from one sport. And I wish her the best in her career as a, a, a female football player. So, Castor Semenya is XY, but that does not matter because we don't define men and women on the basis of chromosomes. If that were the case, then all the history of sex testing would have been much easier. So, we have, there were already text, sex testing based on chromosome, but they were pointing out to false positives. So, women like, who are XY, like the Spanish herder Martinez Patino, but look very like, much like a woman. So on the completely opposite side to looking masculine or hyper-virilized like Semenya, there are women who are biologically XY but are completely resistant to androgen. So that's why we eliminated uh, sex testing based on chromosome in sport. And we wouldn't want to eliminate these women from sport. We would want only to eliminate some women like Semenya. And so that would be my point about XY. That's why we don't talk about chromosome because... If that were so easy, then we've already gone through that. The second point is that actually, it's not that we are all in agreement on everything, but uh, at least from my point of view, um, my interest has always been on Semenya. So if I don't talk about trans athletes, it's because I don't feel like I have the expertise to talk about that because I think there are two separate issues. But I would be in favor of having separate categories in sports, and this, I would disagree with Carton. I think the solution to have a fair sport would be to create categories based on level of testosterone and based on levels of other genetic advantages that we can effectively measure. And as a matter of fact, this is something that has been discussed in the ethical sport and also in policymaking, Stéphane Bermond, one of the authors of the British Journal of Sport Medicine, has written in an article to The Guardian uh, that maybe this will happen in five or ten years. We will see more categories. So this is not just a discussion in academia. Uh, yep, so I think, um, just coming back, trying to come back on as, as many points as I can as possible, um, I think it's actually more unfair to penalise, uh, as one of the audience members said, the genetic makeup of Casta Semenya because it is something that she can't help. It's completely natural. Um, I think it's more unfair to penalise the individual than it is um, to let her compete against other women. Um, yeah, I think there's... I think the... I don't agree that we should um, completely disregard female categorisation. As Emily just mentioned, um, there are physiological differences between most men and most women. Obviously, that isn't the case for absolutely everybody. But um, I think it's important to point out that Casta Semenya can't run as fast as male athletes she's still seconds away from from the best male athletes and even the worst male athletes um and in her last world title race in 2017 she was actually only 0.8 seconds ahead of the athlete who came second like that's not an awful lot um coming back on the trans issue because i know that that's a really important uh issue that people want to um want us to come back on. I think uh, my instinct is that they should be allowed to compete. Um, I think the jury is out on um, how much uh, being born male and then transitioning to um, be female and undergoing sort of um, um, operations and stuff for that. I think the jury is out on um, how much um, that confers an advantage um, and how it would work practically having trans female athletes um, 
compete. I, I, I don't know how it will work practically, basically, and I don't have the answers. Um, but I think in focusing on that, we're actually in danger of um, forgetting what sport is all about. It's about celebrating the best. I think every elite sports person is a biological, genetic oddity. And the whole point is that we should be celebrating the limits of human achievement. And that needs to be remembered. You know, it's not that we're ducking the question about trans. We're, we're just, this wasn't, I, I find it interesting that we, we, we think this is a trans issue, but it's really not. It's, it's much more than that, as, as, as Sylvia's been saying. These are two different questions. I understand your frustration because we're frustrated about this as well. But I, I have to say, your point, you, you voiced exactly what's been in my head for weeks now that I've seen these pictures of the, of the, the winner's pedestal and all that. These are some very hollow victories. You don't want to compete against somebody you know you're going to be. You want to compete against somebody who makes you better. You know, and, and maybe to answer your question, maybe we need another category of Olympics, perhaps a trans Olympics. You know, there is something, there is something about sport that brings out, it's, it's supposed to bring out the best of us. It's not about the trophies. We all, everybody in this room laughs about all the trophies they give out to the participants in Little League. You know, if, if you're just playing for the trophies and you sort of miss the point, it's, it, it, competition is about, it's about who's still standing and dancing when the whistle blows. And if, you're, if your goal is to beat the person that you beat before you even got off the bus, then you're you're dealing with a whole. You're, you're dealing with an ego, much more than a competitive drive, and, that, and that's how I want to leave it at that. Thank you. Can we thank our panel? You can find out more about the festival by heading to our website at battleofideas.org.uk. To stay in touch with our work at the Academy of Ideas, make sure you subscribe to this podcast and sign up to our newsletter by following the link below this recording.